0: Crime data conversations are often debates about how effective the police are. And we want to kind of trouble the idea of what does it mean for the police to be effective, right? We're not all on the same page about what we think the role of the police is in this society. And what does it mean when we're trying to get them to be effective, right? What are we actually politically asking for?
1: This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support The Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events.
0: Good evening, everybody. It is so good to be here. My name is Tamara Knopper, and I want to thank you for joining us for this data literacy lecture on counting crime. Uh, I just want to thank our co-sponsors. we were very lucky to have several organizations that offer to co-sponsor. And so tonight, um, Haymarket, of course, Haymarket Books, but also uh, along with that is Interrupting Criminalization, Survived and Punished, Community Resource Hub for Safety and Accountability, 18 Million Rising, Critical Resistance, Civil Rights Corps. Um, And uh, this event is free, um, but donations are being shared with the National Bail Fund Network, who does some really important work. Um, I wanna thank in particular, Sean Larson from Haymarket Books, as well as Eva Nagao, and Miriam Kaba from Interrupting Criminalization um, for the work uh, with planning. And then I also wanna thank um, our ASL interpreters tonight, Bloshanda, Topher, Kenton, and Aaron, and also our closed captioning uh, person, Corey. Thank you so much to all of you. Um, So uh, we're going to get started. We're going to get into a lot tonight. This is a data literacy lecture. So we're going to be talking about some major data sources. We're going to think about some of the ways that crime gets measured. Um, And we're also going to be thinking a lot about the political and social context of crime data and um, some of the debates and changes that are going on. I want to start though with um, honoring Mr. Robert Moses. Who recently passed away. Um, A big part of my um, approach to data literacy is thinking about it through the politics of participatory democracy. And so I'm deeply influenced by Ella Baker and also uh, um, Robert Moses. And so I just want to take a moment to honor him um, and to thank uh, Mr. Moses for his life and work. His dedication. Um, He's somebody who took very seriously the politics of data literacy, as also a means of self determination, um, of working towards um, you know participatory democracy and of political power. Um, So, thank you, Mr. Moses. Okay, I'm sorry, I'm getting a little emotional. This is what I'm like in my real classroom, y'all. I'm always getting all emotional, and you're going to just have to kind of deal with it, right? You know. Okay, here we go. So we're going to start here are the topics we're going to be looking at here. Hi, everybody. We're back. Thank you for bearing with us with the technical issues. Um, so here's an outline of what we're going to be looking at tonight. We're going to look at early crime data sources. Then two of my favorite scholars, W.E.B. Du Bois and Ida B. Wells Barnett. We're also going to be looking at what are considered the two official national crime data sources, um, the Uniform Crime Report and the National Crime Victimization Survey. We're going to look at some of the ways that the reporting happens for the UCR. And we're also going to dig into kind of what does violent crime mean according to these data sources? And what are the specific crimes that get um, kind of measured in that? Then we're going to end with CompStat. Um, throughout, I'm also going to be kind of raising some questions of how um, sometimes abolitionists have challenged crime data uh, narratives in the process. OK, so this is W.E.B. Du Bois. Right. I just thought this was one of the best pictures. I hadn't seen this picture. Um, and so uh, I was trying to figure out what picture would I like. And I thought this was a great one here. Now, this is a quote of his. Um. He says it is doubtful if any it is extremely doubtful if any satisfactory study of Negro crime and lynching can be made for a generation or more in the present condition of public mind, which renders it almost impossible to get at facts and real conditions. Now, Dr. Du Bois was somebody who thought a lot about crime. Um, it was a big focus of a lot of his research, um, and he also experienced being um, targeted for punishment unfairly um, and disproportionately when he was young. When he was in high school, he got in trouble for stealing some grapes with some other folks, uh, other young people from a prominent citizen in Great Barrington. And he was threatened with having to go to like reformatory school and his principal intervened Um, he did not write a lot about that incident, but he did talk about how he felt that he was going to be punished more extremely than he should have been because of the quote unquote prominence of the person who he stole the grapes from. He also, I mean, this Du Bois, I mean, he was writing a column for T. Thomas Fortune's New York Globe newspaper at 15 years old, y'all, okay? So at 15 years old, He was writing this column. He would write like, you know, a paragraph, a column, um, and he wrote a lot about crime. And so early on as a teenager, he was thinking a lot about crime and about specifically racism and punishment, right? And this is a theme that would be part of his career, um, especially in terms of his social science research. So for example, This book here on the left, The Suppression of African Slave Trade is based upon his uh, dissertation research at Harvard University. And if you haven't read, um, there's an introduction in this version by Dr. Sadia Hartman, which is a really lovely introduction. And in this book, he raises questions about crime and about people breaking the law. Specifically, he was interested in these questions about why Right? Um, did people get to kind of keep engaging in illegal acts in the slave trade, and what was the limited forms of punishment that they got? And so he was thinking a lot about kind of these political contradictions about who got punished and what got punished. Of course, many of us know about his landmark social science study, The Philadelphia Negro. And, um, you know, years later, he wrote a kind of a scathing uh, essay called The University of Pennsylvania. And he talked about um, being brought to Philadelphia and the Whartons, right, of the Wharton School, Wharton uh, School being the very famous business school at Penn, um, and these philanthropists bringing him to conduct this study. And he said that he was quite aware of the fact that he felt that they were bringing him to basically do this research to confirm that black people supposedly were to blame for the problems in the city. And so he was very aware that there was already these racist ideas about black people that people wanted to have, quote unquote, scientific evidence of. And he was trying to do kind of subversive, you know, kind of sociology to challenge that. Um, And, you know, I have to say, if you haven't read the University of Pennsylvania essay, it is quite a great essay. He talks about how he was asked to take a pack of idiots as he calls them on a tour of the slums, right? And the disrespect he experienced as um, a scholar uh, by the University of Pennsylvania. So in this study, he's also thinking about issues of crime. And one of the things that Dr. Du Bois does is he's also thinking about how do we interpret data? Right. And so when he said, you know, the world was thinking wrong about race because it did not know. In my mind, it was a matter of prejudice, right? A, a matter of ignorance, excuse me. And so he was also saying that, you know, um, he was an early challenger to positivism. The idea that the data just kind of tells the truth. Right. Um, and he's really actually kind of an early critic of evidence based kind of arguments that we see today. Right. He was very big on thinking about interpretation through the lens of politics, history, but also through a certain kind of commitment towards challenging racism, right? Now, there have been some questions about some of his kind of moralizing and some of his you know, kind of a class politics in his analysis. So he was not always above some kind of you know, classist interpretations, but he very much was interested in challenging the idea that data itself tells the truth about the world or people. And he was very much interested in the politics of interpretation. Um, as well as the politics of data collection. Okay. So, this is Du Bois, for example, on what today is known as white collar crime. Now, white collar crime is not an actual crime in terms of um, when you get arrested, you don't get arrested for white collar crime. It's a sociological heuristic, right? So, this is Dr. Edwin Sutherland. And um, he was the president of the American Sociological Association. Back in the day, the American Sociological Association was called the American Sociological Society. But ASS would have, you know, it got kind of embarrassing to say That's what the organization. was. I'm sorry, that just makes me laugh, y'all. Right. Really, they they create an organization called ASS. Right. That would have made the first very, very interesting uh, conference, you know, bags and, you know, merch and stuff. But. They changed it to the American Sociological Association, because that just, you know, I guess sounds more professional. And Dr. Sutherland was the um, chair, right, Um, uh, the president of the ASA. And he gave this very famous kind of address called white collar criminality. It even got attention from major kind of newspapers, which you might be shocked to find out. But A lot of times sociological addresses at, you know, uh, conferences don't get that attention. And so. In fact, the FBI. Right. Even references it. Right. So they have this Web page um, from the FBI called White Collar Crime, and they even talk about Dr. Sutherland's you know, concept. Right. And here they talk about, you know, how they measure. Right. What conceptually would be considered white collar crime. So these are laws. Right. Or, um, you know, crimes that they would investigate as white collar crime. But it's not an actual crime. And part of the reason I'm bringing this up is one is to kind of draw attention to the fact that Dr. Du Bois was thinking quite early on about this idea of kind of white collar crime. Right. But. Um, and so here he talks about in the Philadelphia Negro that certain crimes are not punished in Philadelphia because the public opinion is lenient as, for instance, embezzlement, forgery and certain sorts of stealing. On the other hand, a commercial community is apt to punish with severity, petty thieving, breaches of the peace and personal assault or burglary. So here you see Dr. Du Bois one kind of, you know, um, thinking about which crimes are tended to be more policed. He's also thinking about some of the class politics, right? Um, And so Dr. Sutherland, you know, later kind of more formalizes this thinking. And one of the things that Dr. Sutherland was trying to do was he was saying um, uh, and he said social scientists who study crime tend to focus on crimes among poor and working class people, but not so much among business people. And so he associated white collar crime with business people, right? Um, And but this is something that it also raises an important point about data literacy around crime. Right. Today, you'll see, for example, people sometimes use the phrase white collar crime. But this is kind of an analytical framework. It's both kind of a sociological concept. It's both kind of a political critique. Right. Talking about who gets, um, you know, uh, punished or not. But it's not necessarily what is somebody is um, arrested for right? Um, Even though the FBI uses the phrase itself. It's also, you know, what you get arrested for and what ends up kind of being categorized as data can also be different things. And so this is also a bigger conversation about data literacy, right? The difference between what you get arrested for, how that gets measured legally, right? And in terms of the criminal justice system and prosecution or punishment, how we as people who collect data, right, might think about it. In fact, right now, there's all these debates about measuring white-collar crime and creating kind of a white-collar crime data set. And there's all these interesting kind of studies and debates about how would they measure that. But that's on the data collection side, right? And so what happens in the criminal justice system and what happens on data collection and then what gets disseminated as discourse, they can correspond, but they're not always one in the same thing. And so, again, I want to draw attention to Du Bois being an early kind of critic of white collar crime, but also this issue around data literacy and kind of being able to move across different spheres to think about this. Okay, Now, let's talk about polling. Right. So. As we know right? There's a lot of stuff about people's views of the police and of crime. And this is something that we're seeing a lot with the defund the police. So some people are saying things like, Um, you know, this polling data shows this people support or not for defund the police. Or they say this polling data shows, um, you know, um, concerns about crime being up or down. Right now, polling data had been around for a long time by the time Dr. Du Bois was doing this research. But it was around the progressive era of Dr. Du Bois that you started seeing more polls um, and survey attitudes done by social reformers regarding people's views of policy or, or, quote, unquote, social problems. And so this is a study and you've seen a lot of people quote this study as a critique of using um, kind of uh, people's opinion polls about crime. Right. But here this is from 2016. It says voters' perceptions of crime continue to conflict with reality. Imagine that. Right. Um, and so this is something where um, Here, but this is interesting here, the way they kind of frame is saying, despite decreases in U.S. violent property crime rates. And again, later, we're going to talk about how is violent crime uh, usually been measured in these conversations. They say most voters say crime has gotten worse. Right. So the reason I bring this up is, one, there's this kind of whole question about do people really know how much crime exists? Right. And what are their perceptions and where do those perceptions come from? But also part of the idea that the voters perceptions conflict with reality is this kind of reification that this crime data is telling us the truth about crime. Right. We've seen this also among abolitionists, for example, Um, you know, uh, several different kind of abolitionist kind of commentary will say, there was a prison boom or, you know, a prison building boom, despite violent crime being on the decline. Right. Now we can raise some critical questions. Should people's political kind of um, campaigns ever be based upon kind of does crime go up or down? Right. Should our condemnation of prison building or policing or anything be connected to that? But what you see here is even in these kind of critiques of crime data, right, and about people's perceptions, there's still this idea that the crime data is telling us the truth, okay? Now, Dr. Du Bois, um, he conducts one of the first formal investigations of African-Americans' views of the criminal justice system in 1904. And this is as um, he's the leadership of Atlanta University. Now, real quickly, I just want to give a shout out to Dr. Earl Wright II. Um, Dr. Earl Wright is a sociologist, he is at Rhodes College now, and he's been doing a lot of scholarship on Dr. Du Bois and the Atlanta School of Sociology for at least two decades. And he's been doing a lot of work to really show that the Atlanta School was the first U.S. School of Sociology, not the Chicago School. And also, he does a lot of really important work, I just want to point out challenging kind of the charismatic scholar image of Du Bois. Right. Um, he shows a lot of other scholars um, and grad students and students and community members who contributed to the Atlanta School of Sociology. OK, so Dr. Du Bois, um, he conducts this crime poll and this uh, a lot of the um, information I'm going to give and I'm going to show you the study is from Dr. Sean L. Gabbard, I hope I'm pronouncing Dr. Gabbard's name correctly. And so a lot of this information comes from him. And this comes from a study of his. And I'm going to show you some of the tables um, or some of the information from the study. And so Dr. Du Bois is thinking about, you know, people's perceptions of crime and where are they get in kind of the perceptions of if crime is up or down. He's also doing some early studies about people's perspectives of the police. What do they think the function of the police is and how do they think people get treated? Now, what I thought was fascinating is he does studies. He got permission from the Atlanta public school system to interview 1500 black students. I mean, these are pretty young people, ages nine, right, to ask their views about the police. You don't see that a lot in kind of polling data today but he got permission and he interviewed them and he also interviewed black people ages 13 to 21. And he also got, you know, perspectives from city officials, police chiefs, and private citizens. Right. So let me show you.
2: Okay. Um, So this
0: is you know, please wait while the document is being prepared. We're not going to wait, y'all. We can't wait. This information is so interesting. All right, here we go. So this is the article an Early American Crime Poll by Dr. W. E. B. Du Bois. Um, and here, right, for example, you know,
2: what is the purpose of the law, right? What are the
0: purpose of the courts? Purpose of the police arresting people versus protecting them. This is some interesting numbers here, right? Now you had a lot of people who didn't give any response, right? But you know they say the purpose of the police is to arrest them. That outnumbers protecting them. Um, treatment by the police, usually kind to them, unkind to them. You see there's a significant number that says unkind to them. I thought this was some interesting data too, right? Um, Now, here, older African-Americans means ages 13 to 21 for Dr. Du Bois and the Atlanta School uh, scholars. Have police ever helped or protected you? Right. That's some interesting stuff here. Right. Okay. Um, Opinion of those sent to the chain gang. Bad and unfortunate. So questions about punishment. Right. Um, You know, punishment made them worse. These are some interesting questions that Du Bois even kind of posed in the polls. Okay, so now let's go back to the presentation here. Um, so, so we can slide. here we go. Now, I B. Wells Barnett, right? Now, I had to be Wells Barnett thought a lot about crime, and um, both in terms of um, policing and punishment through uh, lynching and racial violence by both uh, the police and the courts, but also from white vigilantes. Um, And so she talks here, she says, the reason our race furnishes so large a share of the convicts is that the judges, juries, and other officials of the courts are white men who share these prejudices. They also make the laws. It is wholly in their power to extend clemency to white criminals and meet severe punishment to black criminals for the same or lesser crimes. And so early on, she was somebody who was very critical of the way that crime data. And we're going to look at, for example, why 1893, right? Why 1890 is kind of significant in this conversation when we talk about some of the prison census data. But she talks about basically, um, you know, the way people are interpreting the data. Right. And what they're you know, willing to kind of have sympathy for, for white people who are in the criminal justice system or prisons, but not for black people. Right. And so, again, both Dr. Ida, um, Dr. Du Bois and uh, Mrs. Wells Barnett, is they're thinking a lot about the issue of interpretation of data. Okay. Now, here are several uh, works by um, Ida B. Wells and um You know, some of these start as pamphlets, and this is something that I think about Miriam Kaba here and, you know, Miriam and um, I worked with her on the book. uh, We do this till we free us. um, So full disclosure and full disclosure, I think the book is great. Um, But she would, you know. Ida B. Wells wrote a lot of these things originally as pamphlets. So you see things like price 15 cents. Sometimes she worked with different organizations, particularly black women's groups who would help raise money for the printing and publishing of these pamphlets. And all of these have eventually become books or kind of their own publications uh, through more formal channels. This is what she wrote, Southern Horrors, Lynch Law and All Its Phases. When she was uh, driven out of Memphis, she was actually not in Memphis at the time, thank goodness. But she was um, a writer, editor and part owner of the Memphis Free Speech. In fact, when they were asking her, she'd come on as editor, she said, no, you got to make me a part owner. I mean, she was just so awesome, wasn't she? So one of the things that she did was she wrote very critically about lynching. She herself originally um, didn't always question the assumptions about um, black criminality um, that went into explaining lynching, meaning people would say, well, black people did certain things and they were punished unfairly. And that was actually a widespread kind of Argument: um, the idea that they were just punished excessively. Frederick Douglass, um, uh, who was a great comrade of hers, she also worked closely with um, Jane Addams, right of the Hull House. At certain points, they believed that black people are kind of just doing certain activities, but that they're being punished too harshly with lynching. Um, Ida B. Wells was really somebody who pushed critically to even think about was the crime even happening to the degree that people thought it was? And she actually changed Frederick Douglass's view. He credited her with um, getting her him to think more critically about his beliefs about um, black behavior. And so she basically was challenging the assumption that um, it was being argued that black men were being lynched because they're raping white women. She was not opposed, and this is a very important point here, she was not opposed to the assumption that interracial rape could exist right? She understood that sexual violence could exist. She was not opposed to assuming that could happen. But what she did was she documented and she went through a lot of lynching data and she went through newspaper articles. She also got a lot, a lot of people trusted her. A lot of Black people wrote her letters and told her stuff in confidence about what they had witnessed or seen with lynchings. Um, And so she did basically a multi-method study and she showed Um, That there were several, you know, a lot of these cases where black men were being accused of raping white women, that they were actually um, consensual interracial relationships, but that a lot of white women would claim that they were not um, either under the threat of duress from other white people or because they didn't want to be basically um, excommunicated from whiteness. Right. Um, And so she was someone who just had such a sophisticated worldview. Um, She did not fetishize interracial relationships, but she understood that the social control around them was part of how people, um, you know, created false claims about Black men, right? So this was considered very incendiary when she said that um, these, that many of these relationships are actually consensual and that white women are not being forced into these relationships. And so they basically came and burned down. They destroyed her office. Um, They basically kind of put a price on her head and she wrote um, in exile. And that was actually the name that she wrote under was exiled for a while. Right. She basically wrote this to kind of tell the truth about, you know, to talk about what happened to her paper. And she did not come back down to the South for almost three decades. It wasn't until she, um, hold on a second here. It wasn't until this happened, right? So this is a case of um, black people in Arkansas who were sharecroppers that were just trying to start a union. And um, uh, a lot of white people didn't like that. And they came and um, started a confrontation with them and physically attacked them, killed and um, assaulted a lot of black people. And several black men were put on trial um, and very, you know, quickly given, I mean, literally like within so many minutes, um, were given the death sentence, right? Uh, in terms of me um, declared guilty and given the death sentence. So Ida B. Wells comes back to the South in, you know, later in her life, like almost 30 years later, and takes uh, the story down of these men. And she writes the Arkansas Race Riot, right? And you can actually find copies of all of this stuff um, online uh, uh, without having to pay for it, right? Um, So one of the things is, is that she, um, hold on a second here, She writes this. And one of the things she says is she says, um, what was their crime? She goes, They basically wanted to start a union. It was called a crime. And so she was thinking quite critically about how is crime measured and why is that um, black people's attempts at freedom, at, you know, kind of, you know, dignity um, or just being able to kind of live freely Right. Um, Being um, uh, punished. Right. Um, Through lynching or in this case, through the death penalty. Right. Now, the quote that you saw from um, uh, 1893 comes from this publication. Right. And this was a series of pamphlets. Right. And you can find this online here. That she wrote with uh, people like Frederick Douglass, I, Garland Penn, and this man, Fernand Barnett, who would eventually become her husband. Right. I just want to say real quick about Fernand Barnett. Right. Um, uh, He was known for writing really lovely love letters, according to their daughter, Elfrida. Um, Barnett Duster. So before people were sliding in DMs, he was known for writing her letters while she was out doing her political work. And um, also when they got married, I just have to say this, he would do a lot of the cooking and he would often cook two meats. Two meats, y'all. Now, I know I sound like an Arby's commercial, but two meats. Okay. Now, this is a pamphlet that they wrote And, you know, here you have, you know, Ida B. Wells sent an address of three cents, right, for postage. And it was a pamphlet. This is really early on, thinking critically about the convict lease system and class legislation and so forth. I recommend, you know, I've taught some of these uh, documents in uh, my class, classes for thinking about kind of early carceral studies uh, scholarship, right? Um, And so Ida B. Wells, the quote that you uh, read of hers comes from um, uh, uh, this pamphlet. Right. And they're basically trying to challenge, you know, all the ways that black people are being criminalized. Right. So this is a red record. And um, this is if you look here, it says, you know, tabulated statistics and alleged causes of lynchings in the United States. And this comes out in the mid 1890s. Right. And, you know, Wells could throw shade. Right. Um, yeah, she was known for writing in her diary about, you know, uh, petty kind of views about, you know, other women she didn't think were so cute that were getting attention. Right. I mean, can anyone relate to this? OK. You know, uh, I'd be well being petty. Right. Um, and she, you know, would do some of that, you know, throwing shade in her titles. Look at this title here. Respectfully submit to the 19th century civilization in the, quote, land of the free and the home of the brave. Right. Now, this is um Uh, I just want to point out this quote comes from Dr. Naomi Murakawa, right? So this is um, uh, Dr. Murakawa here. Many people who uh, are um, study prisons and crime are aware of her scholarship. She is also the editor of the abolition um, paper series for Haymarket. Um, And here she has this really great article. This article just recently came out. It's actually a chapter. OK, use of our cookies. I guess I'll accept the cookies, y'all. OK, I'm going to accept cookies. Here we go. Now, this is a chapter that recently came out. I highly recommend this chapter. I think it's a great chapter. Um, it would be great for teaching in classes and for you know reading and study groups and stuff. Right. About Ida B. Wells and racial criminalization. It comes from this uh, fairly newly published book, African-American Political Thought. And she's basically looking at kind of how Ida B. Wells dealt with crime data, right? And um, this is a quote from her. She says, in a red record, Wells confronted lynching as part of the machinery of black criminalization. She recognized that lynching is quote, justified with numbers about alleged black criminality, statistics laden with racist ideology. A red record was therefore methodologically self-reflexive. It dialectically used murder data while reflecting on its limits. And it noted, quote, black innocence while challenging the very notion that black were on trial. And one of the things that Dr. Murakawa talks about that I think is really useful in this article for abolitionists to think about is, you know, as she says, this kind of self reflexive use of crime data. On one hand, she engages it, uh, Ida B. Wells Barnett. On the other hand, she calls the crime data into question itself. Right. Um, That takes some skills. Also, though, she does not operate. And this is something that Dr. Marikawa emphasizes is Ida B. Wells doesn't operate with kind of trying to prove black innocence, per se. She's really calling into question kind of criminalization and specifically, um, you know, racial criminalization. Right. And if we go back to um, the article here, right, Ida B. Wells and racial criminalization. This takes us to this work here, right? And the term racial criminalization, Dr. Murakawa is quoting Dr. Um, Khalil Gibran Muhammad. I highly recommend his work for those who haven't read it, Um, especially if you're thinking about things like, you know, predictive policing, if you're thinking about big data and policing and big data and criminalization. His book, The Condemnation of Blackness, Race, Crime, and the Making of Modern Urban America, Um, just real quickly, um, okay, here we go. This is um, Dr. Muhammad here. He is at Harvard University, right? And he, um, he defines racial criminalization as, quote, the stigmatization of crime as, quote, black, and the masking of crime among whites as individual failure. And one of the things he talks about is he talks about during the progressive era, right? The use of kind of crime data and statistics to claim that there's something specific about black people that was criminal, And so it was a way of using data, right? As a so-called, as a way to uh, um, promote racist views of the Negro criminal, quote, unquote and to promote racist views of black inferiority. It was also treated as objective and it became a tool to shield white Americans from the charge of racism when they use black crime statistics to support discriminatory public policies and social welfare practices. One of the things he talks about is he also talks about the different interpretation of data when it came to white people versus black people who are caught up in the criminal justice system. He points out that part of racial criminalization is that when people interpreted the data, they would say, well, there's something specifically criminal about black people and that crime gets racialized as black. Right. Toni Morrison, for example, once said that when people talk about crime or welfare, she goes, they're really talking about black people that that's really what the conversation is about, right? And she was saying that obviously quite critically. And so um, Dr. Muhammad is getting at kind of the same point here that crime got associated with blackness, right? But he said when white people were caught up in the criminal justice system, particularly white European immigrants from Eastern Southern Europe, he said there was a lot more sympathy to kind of contextual factors. And so he said there'd be different expectations of punishment, but he also said, this idea that we should invest in certain communities to prevent crime was something that was afforded the so-called white criminal, but with black criminals, it was harsh punishment, right? And so today when we're thinking about, you know, the calls for defund the police and about, you know, um, who should we be investing in, right? Um, Or about, you know, know, decriminalization and so forth, right? Now, obviously we wanna decriminalize for everybody, right? But, you know, what are the racial politics of who's seen as deserving of decriminalization or who's seen as deserving of kind of social investments and who's not? Right. And Dr. Muhammad is showing that there's a long history of this. Also, what Dr. Muhammad is showing that also Ida B. Wells and um, uh, Dr. Du Bois were getting at was that there's a long history of social science being involved in the criminal justice system, but also in racial criminalization. Through data collection, through interpretation, through kind of the idea that the statistics around crime and race tell us something supposedly about people, but also that this was used to kind of racially justify maintaining oppressive systems after, right, um, the end of the Civil War and during the post-emancipation period, right? Okay, so... Now we're going to talk about some of the early national crime data sources here. So what you have is there is always, you know, some of the data I was showing you um, by people like, um, uh, you know, the Atlanta University crime poll um, looking at Atlanta, for example, are local data. And so there's been this kind of question about, well, how do we measure crime nationally? And that's going to take us to kind of the contemporary conversation. So this is the bridge here. So before 1850, the crime data that was kind of used was states with some states would compile crime data primarily from courts and prisons. The 1850 U.S. Census is kind of the first national counting of prisoners and what they were convicted of. So historically, the way people counted kind of national crime data was looking at prisoners,
2: right?
0: And the 1850 U.S. Census is kind of significant also, um, and the counting of prisoners is significant around conversations of felony disenfranchisement. There's nothing in the you know, Constitution originally that said who, desert, who can vote in relationship to uh, 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 being convicted of a felon or um, being a former Felon, quote unquote. Right. But by the time 1850 roll around, there had already been a significant number of states that had opposed um, people who were uh, felons from being able to um, vote. Right. What also happens in 1850 is there's also a lot of questions about race, um, you know, about because this is on the buildup to the end of slavery and the buildup to the Civil War, legally slavery, slavery and the buildup to the Civil War. And so they're also counting, this is um, racebox.org. This is a data visualization from Josh Begley. And if you don't know, Josh Begley does some really amazing amazing data visualization. What he does is he shows from the first kind of U.S. census how race has changed right since then. 1850 was the introduction of the term mulatto. And the reason I bring this up is that this is not disconnected from kind of the counting of prisoners and so forth. Right. There is this whole kind of conversation about the fitness of certain races for freedom. Right. Especially, you know, this question about um, uh, are quote unquote mulattoes or mixed race black people, are they, um, you know, uh, Are they going to be different as a people um, compared to enslaved Africans? Right. And so there's all these kind of things are going on with the 1850 census that are about kind of the future of the country um, in the face of an impending civil war and as kind of um, the debate about slavery versus freedom in states um, gets more and more kind of, you know, um, rises to a a certain kind of uh, uh, level. So the 1880 U.S. Census, this is the first nationwide collection of police data, which includes reports of quote, crimes known to the police, right? Um, And so for homicide, burglary and arson. And this is a census where the race of prisoners was used to support racist arguments about black criminality, right? This connects to also the 1890 census. So if we think back to Ida B. Wells, right? um, And this quote here, saying, you know, why do black people furnish such a large share of the convicts, right? And she's saying, think about, you know, how um, anti-black racism informs all of the structure of the criminal justice system, right? But also the different punishment that black people get, even if they do the same activity as a white person, right? She's responding in a lot of ways to the conversation that was emerging um, because of this type of data. And so people were starting to say, well, we have the census data and it shows, you know, these disparities in terms of uh, Black people being overrepresented in prison. And they were using this once again to, you know, justify racist views of racial criminalization. Right. Now, so as Dr. Muhammad says, prison statistics for the first time become the basis of a national discussion about Blacks as a distinct and dangerous criminal population. Okay. So this takes us to we're now going to look at what are considered the two major national crime data sets today. Right. So this was the early national crime data sets. One of the things that happened here. Right. And the concerns that were raised about the prisoner counts and about the census data is this question about uniformity. They said, okay, so people might report this, but. Um, you know, is crime measured the same, right? Are our statutes the same, um, you know, in different states? And so this question about uniformity, so hence the name Uniform Crime Report, right? This is one of the major um, uh, national crime data sets today. Okay. So this is the FBI's website, the Uniform Crime Report, right? And um, here's, you know, it's website, okay. So there are a couple different players who become uh, the the major proponents of kind of a uniform crime report. One is the International Association of the Chiefs of Police. Here they are. Here, right. Here's their website. Okay. All right. Shaping the future of the police profession. Right. They do all this kind of um, policy research, kind of advocacy work, and so forth. Okay. And. The way the story goes is it's kind of a like if you look at kind of histories of the Uniform Crime Report, a lot of them will mention the International Association of the Chiefs of Police. We're going to get to how that leaves out all these social reformers, social scientists in a moment. But basically, there was this concern that the police were being judged unfairly because of crime wave discourse. So today, as we know, there's these concerns that journalists are engaging in propaganda. that journalists who are talking about crime wave discourse are basically helping kind of, um, you know, um, they're trying to uh, um, discredit, you know, um, defund the police and they're trying to help the police. Right. But part of kind of the idea of crime wave discourse Is sometimes the police have been concerned that it looks like they're not, quote unquote, doing their job. And we want to bookmark that because part of the debate about crime data and how it's collected, but also how we interpret it, is this question about what we think the job of the police is, right? And the way that, um, you know, this question about, you know, what does crime data tell us about. Um, what the police officers jobs are, but also do we think they're quote unquote doing their job? OK, so we want to bookmark that for later. Now, what happens is in 1927 at the meeting, they say before energy is expended to improve police procedure it will first be necessary to collect reliable statistical data. And they establish the committee on uniform crime records. Right. So part of it is they're saying we're getting judged unfairly as police by journalists and by the media and people and politicians are saying there's a crime wave and we're not being, you know, and that we're not doing our jobs. Right. And that we should maybe kind of try to be better police officers. Right. But they're saying before we do that, we need to kind of collect data. okay? now. One of the things is, is that, as I said, if you look at a lot of kind of sources, they'll say, well, the International Association of Chiefs of Police were kind of the main, you know, um, proponents of this. Dr. Lawrence Rosen, who's a sociologist, has written quite a lot about the UCR, and I've assigned uh, um, some of his chapters in my classes. And he says... By only focusing on the IACP, we miss the role of social scientists, social reformers and philanthropists who also played a role in kind of pushing uh, and doing a lot of the labor that eventually became the Uniform Crime Report. This is the point also that Dr. Muhammad is making right? when he's saying that, you know, the kind of, you know, development of crime statistics um, took a whole bunch of social reformers right, and people who would be considered quote unquote progressives. Were involved, so the American Statistical Association. Some of them were pushing. Members of it were part of what was called the Moral Statistics Movement, and that was very big in England or in Europe, excuse me, not just England, um, in Europe. And it was basically, um, you know, where they wanted a lot of data about um, crime, about kind of poverty, about you know um, social class, and about people's so-called behaviors. Okay. And so some of the people who are involved with this ASA were um, also pushing for kind of better crime data. OK. And so Dr. Rosen points out that America's very first step toward our national crime data system was a direct outgrowth of this movement. Right. Um, and so then the Rockefeller, one of the. Um, uh, um, areas of the Rockefeller Foundation, but also the Social Science Research Council, were involved in kind of funding and um, helping kind of bring about um, uh, what would eventually become uh, the origins of kind of a uniform crime reporting system. Okay, so here we go. Let's talk about some of the origins of the uniform crime reporting system here. So the first report is published by the IACP in 1930, and it reported crimes from 400 cities and 43 states, right? Um, in 1930, Congress authorized Bureau of Investigation, which eventually becomes the FBI, to collect, compile and disseminate crime data. In fact, um, J. Edgar Hoover was involved in some of this work, right? And at that time, okay, they followed the summary reporting system model. Then in 1985, Then NIBRS, National Incident-Based Reporting System model, is introduced. And in 1991, the FBI begins collecting data. So some of you are probably saying, well, what the heck is the SRS and the NIBRS? Well, don't you worry. We're about to learn about that in a moment, okay? Now, let's talk about the UCR today. The UCR is basically um, collected from law enforcement agencies, And uh, the the agencies can basically be, um, you know, city, university and college, county, state, tribal and federal. Right. Um, And so. It's voluntarily submitted. This is a big thing is that sometimes people. even as we're kind of demanding data, let's say, right? Some people are demanding data, some people are not, right? Around carceral systems, around the police, around uh, what some people call police accountability. Um, There's often been an issue where the data is voluntarily submitted. And so these agencies voluntarily submit it. um, They either submit it through directly to the FBI UCR program or if the state UCR program has it, right? And what these are are reported crimes to law enforcement and sometimes arrest data on some incidents. Um, this is important. One of the things I want us to think about with data literacy around crime data is when does something become a crime, right? It gets, ca- an incident gets counted, but when does it become a crime? Is it if it's reported? Is it if is somebody is charged with something? Is it if is somebody is convicted of something, right? Um, you know, And so that's something that, you know, the unit that we're looking at and that gets kind of labeled as crime and gets circulated as crime in these debates. That's not always, you know, we have to kind of also make decisions politically about do we think that's an actual crime, right? Um, Versus do we think that a harm might have been reported or documented or listed, right? But when does something officially become a crime? Right. All these data sets we're looking at um, from here on, we'll call everything a crime. And that raises some really important political questions for us as uh, people interpreting and debating this data. Okay, now, one of the issues is. These crimes are reported to law enforcement at these levels. Right. But different states measure things differently. Right. Um, uh, You know, uh, how a state might measure rape or sexual assault might be different, for example, Um, how a state might measure. You know, they might have different measures for homicide. Right. And so this is something where what does that mean if you're trying to create a uniform crime reporting? So what it means is the data that we eventually get in the general public as, quote, unquote, national crime, is data that is reported crimes to the police or to local law enforcement. Then those local law enforcement agencies who are submitting the data have to do it according to a manual that the FBI gives. So there's all this kind of training and manual guidelines about how to kind of, um, you know, uh, categorize these incidents that get reported to these local um, law enforcement or these law enforcement agencies for kind of uniform purposes, right? And so again, we have to think about this as part of data literacy, right? Like how are people, what are these statutes and how is crime measured at at this level? And then how is it getting classified, right? According to a manual, right? But also how is it getting input, right? So let's talk about this here. Here, right, in 2019, So one of the things that's happening is 2019 is the last uh, uh, major report that was published on um, crime data. They're still kind of putting the other report and based on data received from 80 percent of law enforcement agencies in the country. This is 2019. What we're seeing talked about right now, when people are, you know, I'm sure you saw a lot of opinion pieces and and tweet threads about kind of, you know, um, uh, murder is up. Right. But other crimes are down or other quote unquote violent crimes or violent crime is up. Right. In these ways it's getting kind of put into conversation about defund the police or abolition. Or is this because, you know, of what's, you know, all these hypotheses that are being made. Right. That data, a lot of what people are talking about right now is violent crime being up or certain violent crimes being up is based upon this quarterly report. OK, so basically. What the UCR does is they provide an annual report, but they started providing quarterly reports like a couple of years ago. and part of it is and this is something we want to bookmark for when we get to CompStat, right part of it is you know data sources compete with each other. let's be real, right data entrepreneurialism is real trying to show data relev- relevancy is real. And one of the major critiques of these national crime data sets have been that we're not getting kind of up-to-date crime information, or we're not seeing kind of, you know, uh, current things. We're seeing things like a year later or so forth, right? So I can't say for certain. I certainly was not in the room when they said, why are we going to do kind of a quarterly report, right? But this, you know, the, there is this idea of like, we want to give you kind of the public, quote unquote, more up-to-date data here, Okay. So in June 2021, this was when the quarterly report data came out, and it was after this quarterly report data that you started seeing kind of a lot of these opinion pieces, right? This was based on data received from only 44% of law enforcement agencies in the country. Okay. So let's talk about, we're going to go to this data source in a moment. In 2017, the Crime Data Explorer is launched. This is now... The major source of how the public will be able to a- access the Uniform Crime Report data, right? So they're kind of doing away with these major reports and all this stuff. They're going to be kind of launching this. So let's go to this here. I'm going to close out some tabs here, right? Let me close out these tabs. Too many tabs, too many tabs. Okay. Now, um, here we go. Here we go. All right. Now, okay. So this is the crime data explorer. And what was interesting is when you look at some of these pieces where people are saying, you know, crime is up and so forth, and they're citing their source, they just kind of put a link to this page, which I thought was kind of funny. It was like, okay, right? So let's go here. As you can see, the most recent kind of data for national is 2019 at the kind of, you know, level here, right? So this is where I got that information about kind of the 80%, right? This is. The quarterly uniform crime report. This is where I got that data to talk about 44%. Now, this is what's a little confusing. And the reason I want to say this is a little confusing is they say the court, they say the quarterly uniform crime report data for the nation are derived from the summary reporting system and the national incident based reporting system. The reason why this is confusing is I'm not totally sure if this quarterly data is based upon this. And the reason I say that is this, as of January 1st, 2021, FBI will only start collecting data through this. They have phased out the SRS system. And we're gonna talk about why that's significant in a moment, right? Um, And and don't you worry, we're gonna talk about what is SRS versus NIBRS, okay? But they have phased out this. In fact, let's talk about right now, okay? So let's talk about this. The SRS system versus NIBRS, NBIRS, historically uniform crime reporting data included both. right? But this is important. The SRS follows the hierarchy rule. What does that mean? It means, right, that basically the police, when they're inputting this data, right? So when the police were doing this, right? And they're inputting the data from their, you know, collection, and they're inputting it according to the FBI manual, they're supposed to use the hierarchy rule. And so basically, they're supposed to say, okay, in one situation, you might have had several crimes, right? But what would we see as kind of the most severe crime? And that's the one we're going to kind of put down, right? Well, murder is often going to be considered the most severe crime. Right, And so it kind of tilts towards, SRS kind of tilts towards kind of severe crimes or what we might call violent crimes, often getting kind of more attention in terms of input, okay? And um, this is something that, uh, you know, so let's talk about how violent crime has been measured, okay? So violent crime historically in the UCR, when you're hearing violent crime data, um, you want to kind of, you know, it sounds kind of obvious, but you want to say, how is it measured? All right. And in the UCR violent crime, you know, let me see if I can make this a little bit. I'm going to zoom in. Oops. oops, I'm zooming out y'all. Okay. Here we go. I'm zooming in. Sorry. You know what? This is a fun game. It's called zoom in, zoom out, zoom in, zoom out. Here we go. Okay. Now,
2: okay. Now here, the
0: way that they, you know, um, So, they talk about the hierarchy rule, right? So, they measure murder um, not as homicide in all the ranges of how homicide could be measured. They measure it as murder and non negligent manslaughter, right? So, when you're getting uh, um, murder reported as violent crime in the UCR, this is how they're measuring it. That that might be very different. Um, And one of the things that we want to think about is people use the word homicide interchangeably. In fact, if you go to the Bureau of Justice Statistics, and you look at some reports where they're kind of summarizing UCR data, they use the term homicide, right? And that can be confusing because homicide could mean something different at the level of kind of statutes or how a state does it, right? And we might think it means this, this, and this or whatever, but they're using it sometimes as, you know, they're saying murder is murder, non-negligent manslaughter, rape, robbery, and aggravated assault. Now, one of the things that we want to keep in mind about UCR data as well is that you have both the level of, you know, how does the data get input to meet this manual guidelines? But also within the UCR manual guidelines, there's a lot of kind of issues regarding how do they measure something like rape, right? There's what is known as the legacy definition of rape, and the legacy definition of rape was basically rape of a female. And um, as you know, there's been a lot of really important work politically to, uh, you know, show that a range of genders exist, right? And that also a range of genders can be sexually violated or raped, right? That means that there's other measurements or classifications of rape that the UCR works with beyond the legacy definition. And so sometimes when you're looking at some of the kind of debates about the data, they'll say, well, you know, the UCR data, we classified it. We also incorporated, you know, the legacy definition, or they'll talk about kind of phasing out certain data terms, but, you know, doing it over time and not kind of automatically, right? So um, these are the kind of four major violent crimes that they tend to kind of focus on, right, as well as arson. So I want to show you, this is the data. If you were to go to we go back to my, prison. this is, you know, this is how I am in the classroom. I'm like, where are my tabs, y'all? Okay, here we go. So if we go back to,
2: go back to something here. Okay, here we go.
0: We're going back to something. That's a good start. If we go back to the Coral Uniform Crime Report, this is the data, right? And that's available to us. And they say to download the data. So, um, and this is what you get. Right now, I want to show you something here. Okay. If I put into here cities like New York, do you notice? And let me make this bigger here. Okay, I gotta close this out. I trying to be all dramatic here, right? Okay.
2: Now, if you go and you look for New York City, it's not listed, right? Let's say we look for Chicago. Right. Chicago, there's no Chicago data in here, right?
0: There's no Philadelphia data in here, right? So some of the cities that we hear all these stories about, right, and so forth, there are a lot of cities, major cities, which just you know, what some people would see as high prime cities, but also just large numbers of high populations of people, right? And that can impact kind of things like, you know, the crime rate. Right. If you're looking at, you know, kind of certain crimes based upon um, the crime rate and not just the raw number, the rate being, let's say, you know, a certain incident uh, by every 10,000 or every 100,000 people. Right. You know, that can uh, impact some of that stuff. So this is the data. So murder, rape, robbery, aggravated assault, This equals 73, right? So, this would be you know, uh, they basically measure violent crime as these four things, right? Now, property crime, um, they measure these things here. Okay. So, that is the data source that a lot of people are using. And one thing that's really interesting is. They like different news sources are kind of talking about this data. Kind of just keeps citing, let's say, like the same kind of article that also cited this data, right? Um, I have not played around with this data, so I have not calculated percentages or looked at twenty twenty versus twenty twenty one, right, and so forth. But that's the data that they're using Um, now. One of the things that happens is they're moving. Let's see here. To, the NI, to the NBIRS thing. And the reason I said that I'm not sure if that quarterly data is NBIRS or SRS, I don't think, don't quote me on this, right? They don't say, that's one of the frustrating things. They don't say this is based upon this data, right? And then they say like, you know, the quarterly data is based upon this. Well, all of these uh, kind of statements and memos that are circulated... Um, online uh, by um, the FBI and the UCR program, they say that SRS data will no longer be collected starting January 1st, 2021. The quarterly data is for the first couple of months of 2021. So we'd have to kind of maybe deduct that NBIRS data is the data that they're using. I can't say for certain, right? One of the things I think is interesting though, is that even as um, they're not using the NBIRS, it doesn't follow the hierarchy rule, So it includes a lot more activity than um, the hierarchy kind of model. Um, They collect a lot more data on other activities that they associate as crimes. They also include more qualitative and situational data. So they ask more about kind of the offender um, uh, and so forth, right? But remember this data is collected from police forces, right? Um, there's been some, uh, conversation about will the switch to MBIRS what will that mean for making comparisons, right? Will this make it, will crime go up if you can collect more crime data per incident and allow for kind of all of the crimes that were involved in an incident to be included, right? So there's all this debate about what impact will this have, but this also raises questions about how we're evaluating, right? how we're evaluating um, second here. how we're evaluating kind of comparisons, right? And this is something, you know, and right now what you're seeing is people saying, you know, crime has gone up exponentially, da, 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 right? One of the things I think is interesting is the FBI warns us about making these comparisons. So they say, since crime is a sociological phenomenon influenced by a variety of factors, the FBI discourages ranking locations or making comparisons, right? But this is, what we want to kind of think about. They're saying because we don't want to measure law enforcement effectiveness, what they're basically more concerned about is the use of crime data to judge the police unfairly, right? So, you know, we want to keep in mind, they're giving us a good suggestion, avoid ranking comparisons, right? We want to kind of think a little bit more about, you know, these kind of, you know, crime is up, crime is down kind of, you know, type of things. But in the end, they're basically saying, we just don't want you to think badly about the police. So this is kind of connected again to the way that the International Association of Police Chiefs were concerned about their reputation as police because of discourses about crime waves, right? And a lot of times crime data, this is something we're going to think a lot about with CompStat. Crime data conversations are often debates about how effective the police are. And we want to kind of trouble the idea of What does it mean for the police to be effective, right? We're not all on the same page about what we think the role of the police is in the society. And what does it mean when we're trying to get them to be effective, right? What are we actually politically asking for? That's something we also wanna be thinking about in the way we're interpreting kind of crime data in relationship to police activity, okay? Now, let's go back to this presentation, okay. About to start my slideshow from the current slide. Here we go. Now. Let's go back to this. Right. So as of January 21st. Right. So here we go. Now, what is some of the UCR data used for? Right. Well, some of it is used for funding. Right. And so here this is the Everburn Justice Assistant Grant Program, JAG, and according, you know, by statute, right, you can only, you know, funding is calculated using violent crime data from the FBI's UCR program. right? And so UCR data is used to kind of measure, quote unquote, police performance. It's also used to kind of look at what are seen as quote unquote needs of policing agencies um, and law enforcement agencies and to kind of allocate funding. Um, And so this is, you know, it talks about this fact sheet and so forth here. Okay, now we're looking at the second. This is the other national official. This is the other official national crime data set. So we have two official national crime data sets that people talk about as official national data. UCR and now the National Crime Victimization Survey. Right. Now we're going to talk about the differences between these two. This is administered by the U.S. Census Bureau. So they have a very brief page about this,
2: right?
0: And they say it's the nation's primary source of information on criminal victimization, okay? Now, it's administered on behalf of the Bureau of Justice Statistics. The Bureau of Justice Statistics was started in 1979, and it is the Department of Justice, um, their criminal statistics agency. Right. They are in charge of kind of criminal statistics for the Bureau of Justice, for the Department of Justice. What makes this data different from the um, UCR data, right, is UCR data are reported crimes to law enforcement. And um, it's basically police and law enforcement agencies are giving us this data. National Crime Victimization Survey is based on interviews with people. And basically, um, you get a letter, right? Um, uh, I've never gotten one of these letters and it's voluntary, right? You do not have to respond to the letter. You don't have to participate in the study and it's self-reported. And this this is why murder is not included. Obviously, you can't report your own murder, right? And so, um, this is one of the reasons why, if you think about national crime data, if you're getting data on national murder data, it's going to come from UCR. It's not going to come from this. Okay. And so, this is the sample. It's a nationally representative sample of 169,000 persons age 12 years or older living in US households. And basically, you get interviewed and you go and you are kind of uh, you know, regularly interviewed over a course of years, right? They interview all people in a household 12 or older. So you, um, you, and it's supposed to be everyone in the household. There are some exceptions about if somebody else can kind of answer the questions for you. And that has to do if there's kind of mental or physical capacity issues, or if let's say, um, a guardian doesn't want the 12 year old to answer the questions themselves. Right. And you're supposed to be answering questions about the past six months. This raises obvious questions about do people always kind of keep a timeline of like, when did something happen or not, right? And this is also something that makes this survey different from the UCR data, is that it asks about reported incidents to the police, but also what are incidents you might not have reported, right? It also asks a lot about your experiences with the criminal justice system did you take self-protective measures? Do you think that the quote unquote offender was using substances? Right. Um, And so it's trying to get more of a profile of kind of the situation, but also how you dealt with the situation and, you know, and whether or not you reached out to the police, but also why. Right. And so this is kind of where one of the things we want to think about is a lot of national crime, you know, a lot of national crime data, again, is also about kind of um, police management, right? It's about kind of, you know, are the police quote unquote doing their job? And again, we can think politically about what is the police, you know, what is their job? Okay. So let me show you, um, before we go to this here, let
2: me show you. This is what
0: a national crime victimization survey screening questionnaire looks like, right? And one of the things is, is, you know,
2: um, this is what I think is interesting.
0: Look at the way they're kind of posing this before we get to the crime questions. So they're already kind of using the language of crime to describe an incident that somebody might recall, right? And again, you know, one of the things you want to ask is when does an incident become a harm? But when is a harm a crime? Right. And how do we decide that? But all of these data sources, right, whether they're, you know, it's police reporting or kind of self-reporting through interviews, all are measuring everything and kind of assuming that everything that is reported is a crime. Right Um, now. So here. They're asking questions like theft. I'm going to read some examples that would give you an idea of the crimes this study covers. Right. So asking about theft or stolen. Did anyone attempt to steal anything? Right. Here you they ask about kind of, you know, the number of times what happened. Right. So it's also, um, you know,
2: other incidents. Right. Motor vehicle theft
0: uh, people being attacked and where, right. One of the things that happens with the national crime victimization survey is there's also, you know, the issue of kind of training the researchers, right. And they're, you know, part of what the survey does is it tries to kind of encourage people to kind of have their memory jogged about certain incidents. Right. And this is an interesting question about, you know, on one hand, um, You know, people might have an experience, right? Do they necessarily think it's a crime? Um, What happens if the researcher is already using kind of the language of crime as equivalent of incident or what somebody might remember in terms of certain activities and certain criteria, right? That incident might have happened, right? Does that person who um, identifies who was, you know, who experienced that incident, Do they identify as a victim within the discourse of crime is also another thing. Do they feel, you know, that they have been violated in a particular way? Right. Mm -hmm. Um, This is also something that we want to think about too politically in terms of kind of some of this data. Right. It also raises these interesting questions about how kind of victims rights Politics and the discourse of kind of victims can also sometimes be used as kind of the basis of kind of crime data collection as well, right? So that's some things that, um, you know, we can also think about here. Now, let's talk about. um, I want to go back. I, I forgot to show you this here, right? This is a document about the UCR. We're going back to the UCR about how do they kind of talk about murder and non negligent manslaughter. Right. And so, you know. They point out things like, you know, although law enforcement agencies may charge offenders with lesser offenses, example, negligent manslaughter, agencies report the offenses as murder non-negligent manslaughter if the killing was willful or intentional. Right. And so this gets at some of the differences between how a law enforcement agency might classify something and how they're expected to input something. Right. You can also have something that might be understood as homicides, right? Sometimes suicides get measured as homicides or a traffic fatality, right? But um, and this is where kind of the language of homicide being used as equivalent for murder can be kind of confusing because is that the way it's legally being measured by a law enforcement agency? Is that the way it's being kind of categorized in terms of data? Is that the term that we're using kind of just interchangeably, right? This is part of kind of the data literacy stuff, too. I just want to kind of point out. All right. So let's go back to. So let's talk about the origins of the National Crime Victimization Survey. And this is going to take us to President Lyndon Johnson. In March 8, 1965, he gave a special message to Congress. Reportedly, according to um, the US government, I forget what website, I'm sorry, I've looked at so many US federal government websites. He was the first president to give a specific message about crime to Congress, right? According to um, uh, this study study of him. So, this is the message, special message to Congress on law enforcement and the administration of justice, March 8, 1965. And here he's talking about crime and he's talking about what's happening at the local level. Right. And about, you know, um, and how uh, the kind of um, he's talking about what can be done. And I want to draw our attention here to where he's
2: talking about kind of federal law enforcement. um, Things here. Right. So he's talking about. Okay, so he's talking about
0: creating a president commission. He's talking about, you know, assistance to local authorities. And he's saying, you know, um, we're going to kind of propose a law enforcement assistance act, right? And how do we kind of strengthen crime control programs and make them more effective, right? Federal government now provides financial assistance for research and training in other professions, science, mathematics, foreign languages, medicine, nursing. Train professional law enforcement personnel fully as essential to the preservation of national health, right? So this is part of uh, President Johnson's legacy in terms of policing is research and development, right? So he proposes this uh, act and he proposes this office. He also announces the Establishment of Commission on Law Enforcement Administration of Justice. And he recommends the creation of this administration and within it, these offices. These offices today become the Office of Justice Programs in the National Institute of Justice. So this is also part of President um, Johnson's legacy, right? So this is Office Justice Programs Federal Agency that provides us all of this, right? These are the offices that eventually became
2: developed through that. So Bureau of Justice
0: Statistics, as I said, is the Department of Justice's um, uh, Crime Statistics right? um, Agency that was established in 1979, obviously after President Johnson was long out of office. Right. The National Institute of Justice right, is very much kind of a research and development evaluation office. Right. And so part of kind of the scientific policing, right. Uh, President Johnson is a major part of the origins of kind of, you know, contemporary scientific policing. They produced a report, The Challenge of Crime in a Free Society. Most recently, um, when William Barr was the attorney general, they produced another report and was one of the first reports in decades. And it had, uh, I think, the same title. Right. Then there's a the National Crime Survey launches in 1973. This National Crime Survey right becomes the basis of the National Crime Victimization Survey. So President Johnson, is, his administration was the one who brought us this survey. And part of what the survey was is they said, we need more contextual data to kind of think about what are social factors and correlations that we can look at for kind of quote unquote, efficiently fighting crime. They also said, we um, need more data about victims, right? And they also said they didn't like having just one kind of major national crime data source. So this is President Johnson. Now, what was going on that made President Johnson give this special message to Congress, right?
2: Well, Barry
0: Goldwater, right? So Barry Goldwater, Um, who was a Republican uh, candidate for president, was uh, always talking about crime, but he also started linking the social welfare state with crime. And he says, you know, Goldwater links the welfare state to a rise in crime. And so part of, as a lot of us know, President Johnson was a promoter of the Great Society programs. And a lot of uh, uh, programs in terms of the social welfare fair state and what would be considered, you know, a civil rights program, some civil rights programs. Right. And so um, President Johnson, you know, was being considered, quote unquote, soft on crime. Right. Um, Both in terms of in the face of urban rebellions. So you had a significant number of rebellions in black urban neighborhoods, oftentimes um, as uh, partly as critiques towards the police and oppressive uh, conditions. Um, And you also had um, uh, a lot of opposition to the social welfare state. And one of the things that Barry Goldwater did is if you look at some of his rhetoric, is he talks about the social welfare state as being kind of elitist hippie, you know, kind of uh federal government imposing itself on local governments. So he used this kind of, you know, big government is trying to kind of take on like local governments critique, right? But he also was linking welfare and crime. And this is not, you know, something that was only the Republicans, right? You know, we know of course that, you know, um Daniel Patrick Moynihan also, you know, kind of made some of these linkages. In- so forth, right? So there are plenty of Democrats who also made this linkage. So this is Dr. Um, Elizabeth Hinton, and she is a historian. Um, and she has the book From the War on Poverty to the War on Crime The Making of Mass Incarceration in America. And one of the things she talks about is how um, President Johnson responds partly to kind of these accusations that he on crime by, you know, um, uh, providing all these resources from the federal government to local um, kind of policing. So it becomes this way of kind of saying we respect local authority, but we will provide kind of federal resources through grants or through offices and research to kind of support. you, Right. But also part of what happens is there's a lot of punitive measures that President Johnson um, creates in terms of the enforcement of uh, the social welfare thing, particularly forms of public assistance. Right. And so today, when we're thinking about defunding the police and people are talking about you know, um, different social welfare programs or the role of social workers and so forth, right? Remember that people are saying that we're trying to get kind of non-punitive and non-humiliating forms of social Welfare programs and social welfare administration, and you know, part of the legacy of um, you know creating very punitive measures and kind of humiliating measures um, and and criminalization associated with um, you know kind of on the uh, social welfare state. Uh, that's also part of uh, President Johnson's legacy here. Okay, so now. This is a quote from Dr. Hinton, and this is something, you know, she says, the OLEA worked with local law enforcement to develop new technologies to ground preemptive law enforcement methods and statistical knowledge. Federal policymakers and law enforcement officials were generally unwilling to challenge the widely held belief that only increased patrol in segregated urban areas could prevent crime assuming that disorder could be contained simply by increasing the presence of law enforcement on the streets. The Johnson administration was committed to assisting local police departments in, quote, modernizing their data gathering capabilities, which would allow them to build criminal profiles of residents and therefore target street patrols more effectively. In St. Louis, law enforcement personnel fed crime statistics into a machine to, quote, show where and when particular types of crimes are likely to occur and help police decide where patrols should be concentrated. Officers could then effectively swoop into targeted neighborhoods and apprehend offenders. Similarly, the Philadelphia Police Department received computerized crime prediction programs to target street patrols based on anticipated crime. By treating urban crime as a scientific phenomena that could be predicted and contained, these and other programs further rationalize the concentrated deployment of police officers in black communities. Right. So one of the things is, is if we go to if we think about predictive policing right, and if we think about hot spots. Right. But also this is important. A lot of abolitionists will talk about the police don't prevent crime. Right. That's one of the major critiques people say is the police
2: don't prevent crime. Right.
0: Well, part of, you know, predictive policing. Is the claim that they're trying to answer that request to prevent crime and that they're going to kind of, you know, uh, stop it before it happens. Right. Because they're going to look at kind of areas where crime is likely to happen. Right. And so one of the things that, you know, we want to think about is when we, you know, might critique the police by saying you don't prevent crime. Right. Um, You know, on one hand, we could say that's true. Right. On the other hand, we could also say, you know, are we setting the stage for kind of, you know, people saying, okay, well, we'll just have, quote unquote, better methods to prevent crime. Right. And part of what predictive policing does is it claims that it's a crime prevention measure instead of just trying to solve a crime after it happened, right? And for those who are, you know, interested in the history of racism and, um, you know, and predictive policing and a uh, hotspot, right? Um, and if you haven't considered Dr. Hinton's work on President Johnson's administration, this is a really important part of kind of the story, right? So, CompStat. This brings us to CompStat, right? Part of what we have going on here, right, is some of the same logic in CompStat, right? Now, CompStat, there's some debate about, is it called, you know, if you look at different sources, some people say it means compare statistics. Some people say it means computer statistics. Some people say it means compare computer statistics, right? Okay. It started in New York City in 1994, um, and we're going to look at the people who started it. And it's promoted as, quote, scientific policing. And it uses geographic information systems to quote, unquote, map crime and conditions likely to cause crime and to determine where policing should be directed and how. So this is something you want to consider is that they part of the mapping is they want to know things like um, if you read like some of the reports that they write about, you know, why if you read pro CompStat kind of arguments, they'll say things like, well, we can map where parolees live. And we can be paying really close attention to those neighborhoods because we think they might be likely to commit crimes again. Right. Or they might say, we look at, you know, um, there are robberies in this neighborhood. Were they around this time? How many schools are there? Do we think that it's, you know, connected to kind of when kids get out of school? Right. So one of the things is they focus on, quote unquote, patterns. Right. And they um, claim that it's to identify crime, quote-unquote, hotspots. Where does crime occur? But also, where do they think it's most likely to occur, right? So they're also making a lot of correlations, right? So they're doing what they think is scientific policing, and they're making correlations. Now, one of the things is, if, if you recall, part of what I said was that a lot of crime data collection You know, even going back to kind of the origins of the Uniform Crime Report was based upon kind of, you know, trying to help the public profile and perception of policing. But it was also seen as how can police supposedly, quote unquote, do their job better, quote unquote, and and what will da- how will data help us, right? And so CompStat is also a management principle tool in terms of how um, they claim, you know, they're going to better manage police forces to be more efficient in terms of, quote unquote, fighting crime, okay? And it claims to promote efficiency, productivity, and accountability among the police, right? Now, accountability here, from a management perspective
2: means, are you bringing the crime numbers down?
0: Okay. That isn't the same necessarily as what abolitionists might, or critics of the police might think is accountability. So we wanna kind of, you know, keep that in mind, right? It's also a lot of times with comps that it's not only kind of the data collection, it's also this idea of kind of having regular meetings. And so if you go online, you know, you can actually look at some of these news stories where they have these meetings and and you'll see kind of these big rooms filled with like the police commissioner and police chiefs or, you know, whatever. And you'll have like people from the 44th precinct having to answer in front of the whole room. Why do you have, you know, why is the crime up? Why isn't it down? What are you going to do? Right. And sometimes, you know, these meetings have highly esteemed guests like politicians and, you know, and celebrities visiting to kind of watch these meetings. Right. It's also one of the things about Comstat is it's, Uh, promoted as better than uniform crime data or other data, because it's seen as giving up-to-date crime data and is used as so-called crime prevention tool versus data that might be collected quarterly or annually, right? Now, it was started in New York City. This is ComStat New York Police Department online, right? And They call it CompStat 2.0. And if you go to the website, they talk about it as being quote-unquote transparent to the public. One of the things we wanna think about issues of transparency is on one hand, there's data that we can see, right? But transparency around data is also about data literacy, right? Do people who are looking at this data know how this data was collected, right? Um, What you can do is you can kind of go into, let's see here.
2: Um okay, let so see if we can view the road.
0: Well, I was looking at it the other day and for well, what I'll suggest is you can look at the sideline. I was looking at the other day and I you see all these uh, red points on the map and stuff like that. But um, you can, if you haven't looked at it online, you can look at it yourself and you can like actually kind of see all these red dots and uh, different things and, you know, like a Google map and kind of, you know, look at what's going on in the neighborhood and what supposedly was reported. Right. Now, let's talk about the origins of CompStat. All right. This is from an internal NYPD article. Now, the way I got this internal NYPD article is I read a report on CompStat. OK, and this was where they say, for the first time in its history, the NYPD is using crime statistics in regular meetings of key enforcement personnel to direct its enforcement efforts. In the past, crime statistics often lagged events be it by months, and so did the sense of whether crime control initiatives had succeeded or failed. Now there's a daily turn on the CompStat numbers, as crime statistics are called, and NYPD commanders watch weekly crime turns with the same hawk-like attention private corporations pay to profits and loss. Crime statistics have become the department's bottom line, the best indicator of how police are doing precinct by precinct and nationwide, right? So as you see management, it's kind of, you know, it's combining kind of crime prevention with also this idea of police management. These are the origins, right? So Jack Maple and William Bratton, they both had history working with the New York Transit Police Department. And Jack Maple, he would do what he called charts of the future. And he basically was kind of saying, you know, what, you know, subway lines are most likely to have this, this and this, right? Supposedly, he was at a restaurant and he wrote down on a napkin the goals of CompStat. It's a bit Some people say he was kind of, you know, a showboat. Who knows, right? But if you look at different articles about CompStat and reports about CompStat, they repeat these talking points nonstop. Okay. In 1993, he's selected by then incoming New York Police Commissioner William Bratton to be deputy commissioner. This is William Bratton. Okay. He implements CompStat in 1994. William Brett has sometimes described himself more as CEO than cop, right? And he talks about kind of the business kind of management. George Kelling was his advisor. Who is George Kelling? George Kelling was one of the co-creators of Broken Windows Theory with the James Q. Wilson, okay? We're gonna talk about that in a moment. Part of the origins of CompStat is also about kind of this trying to clean up New York and tourism, okay? So this is an article I've taught to my students about the, quote, unquote, cleaning up a Broadway. So part of the history, for example, of the Disney uh, Broadway theater was, you know, Michael Eisner at the time and so forth, working with the Giuliani administration saying, you know, you're going to, quote, unquote, have to clean up Broadway. Right. Um, Part of what happens to it this time is. um,
2: Is. I clicked on the same link, okay,
0: is this, right, is this alliance, the Times Square official alliance starts around the same time in the early 1990s, right, Um, during the same period. This is the group that brings you the Times Square countdown with the ball on, you know, New Year's Eve, and we're all watching Mariah Carey, right, who I love, by the way. Um, And so this is something where, you know, part of it was, it was both the way that, Crime was seen as very high in New York, especially murders, but also is affecting tourism. And part of the creation of kind of Broadway as a so-called family friendly tourist spot, right, um, was during this kind of time period. Right. And you had a lot of business and, you know, and, and, and um, uh, um, real estate developers and so forth who were kind of pushing for more policing. OK, so critiques of Comstat. This is our last slide. Right. Is One is obviously it promotes broken windows policing. So, for example, I said that these two men had their history in New York Transit Police Department. One of the critiques people raise of the police and abolitionists will raise of the police is they'll say, well, what do the police do? And they'll say they really don't kind of solve major crimes. They solve, you know, they kind of focus on small things, right, that aren't kind of major, you know, violent crimes or so forth, right? Well, according to kind of broken windows theory, it's the idea that you kind of deal with what might be seen as kind of little issues before they become big issues, or because supposedly the little issues might take you, might get more of the people who might end up doing bigger crimes off the streets. So, for example, Jack Maple and William Bratton, they, you know, were kind of big into, um, Uh, you know, arresting turnstile jumpers, right? So we'll see a lot of times videos online where people say, you know, why are you harassing this turnstile jumper? And we should be raising those questions, right? But part of the logic of Broken Windows that they operated with is they would say, well, in catching those turnstile jumpers, we're kind of decreasing delinquency. But also those jumpers might go on to do kind of worse crimes or in stopping them, they might have warrants or something that we might be able to kind of get them on, right, or or become more aware of, right? And so part of broken windows policing is you know, what people might see as signs of disorder, like a broken window or abandoned cars. But it's also this idea of um, kind of, you know, really monitoring small policing activity, what we might consider small crimes. Or why are you you know focusing on those? Because they associate with it as kind of correlating with the possibility of violent crimes or bigger crimes, right? There's also Stop and Frisk, which is a well-known program. And William Bratton Defends even to this, you know, when he got asked, so, you know, Bill de Blasio runs as mayor on a police reform kind of, you know, uh, he claims to be about police reform, but yet he brings William Bratton, right, to be his, you know, um, uh, uh, head of the police department. And William Bratton is here, you know, saying, okay, well, we might have to, you know, reform some things about stop and frisk, but he says you cannot police without it. Right. If you did not have it, then you'd have anarchy. So he still is defending at this time, stop and frisk. Right. You also have what. Um,
2: uh, Dr. Issa
0: Kohler-Hausman. Who's uh, at Yale Law School or Professor Issa kohler doctor, we'll call her doctor. OK. Um, but, and she talks about the growth of misdemeanor land. Right. This is a title of her book. And one of the things she looks specifically at New York, and part of it is there's no national data set on misdemeanors, even though you have scholars who've estimated the national count of misdemeanors and misdemeanor. I mean, there's just millions of people who get caught up in the criminal justice system through misdemeanors. Right. And so a lot of studies of misdemeanors that go really in depth are going to be local studies because of a lack of kind of a national data set. And um, uh, Professor Kohler-Hausman did a study, and she looks at kind of just the sheer number of people who might not go to prison, right, or jail, but they end up getting marked in the system. It costs, you know, they get a criminal record. It costs them a lot of money and time and stress. And also, it puts them in contact with the police. And there's always the threat of your life being endangered when you're in contact with the police, right? So, and she shows that a lot of the stop and frisk and misdemeanors are targeted towards Black and Latinos, right? There's also this critique of CompStat about. Quotas versus performance goals. So on one hand, some people will say, well, quotas are illegal or they've been outlawed or we don't do that anymore, right? But CompStat as kind of a a management tool also pushes the police to kind of meet certain performance goals, right? And so, you know, there's been a lot of interesting research studies with retired police officers where they talk about, you know, some of the kind of enticement towards corruption or the way they felt pressure to meet performance goals, this is not to draw sympathy towards them, but it is to say that the kind of Comstat model also kind of encourages what some people might, you know, call quotas, and some people might euphemistically call performance goals. Right now, for example, the police union in New York City is taking on the police commissioner, saying, um, you know, Comstat is not helpful because you know it's creating all these, you know, kind of, you know. Um, performance goal type of things, and it's creating problems with communities. Now, that police union is also mad that the anti-crime unit um, is no longer there. And they're saying they can't kind of police in the way that they uh, should. Right. So, you know, obviously, they're still pro policing. And obviously, you know, um, you know, we can raise questions about do they really care about these communities? But you have sometimes As workers, right, I know there's a lot of debate about police officers, workers, but as workers, you have uh, police who've been critical of CompStat for what they think is kind of unfair expectations of them in terms of productivity. Regardless, that debate does not resolve, obviously, the issue of police. Right. So it's an internal kind of debate. Right. But CompStat as kind of a management tool. Right, um, is something that has you know this issue of performance goals, right? And people have talked about how Comsat is really about kind of increasing the numbers and the numbers and the numbers, right? And that includes kind of you know what impact that has on communities. All right, so that is the end of my presentation. We now have time. I'm just going to take a breath for a second, y'all. Ooh, I did some yoga this afternoon, but. Okay, I just take a breath. All right. Um, I'm going to look at this Google Doc and Sean is supposed to give me any questions that some people have. We're going to be out of here promptly at eight out of respect for everybody who's working on this tonight, as well as all of you who have shown up. Right. Um, Before we do that, though, I just want to say that um, interrupting criminalization is. Launching a new report that's relevant to the topic, Interrupting Criminalization, is um, one of the co-sponsors tonight. They are launching this report. Cops don't stop, stop violence, combating narratives used to defend police instead of defunding them. Um, and they look a lot at how crime data gets talked about. So, this is a report co created, co produced by the Community Resource Hub and Interrupting Criminalization, our two, uh, two of our co sponsors. And it was written by Andrea Ritchie of Interrupting Criminalization and Jared Knowles, right? And I believe um, they're planning on dropping the link of the report into the YouTube chat. I don't have that link, so I hope they do that, Um, but that report, I just want to draw attention to it. I'm now going to um, find this document from Sean.
2: Okay. For the Google Doc. Okay. Um, To see if there are any questions. Uh, Let's see. (laughs)
0: Sean, okay, here we go. I I see. Okay, you know I was going to be like Sean, can you drop something in the chat? But I'm about to open up the links, y'all. Okay, here we go. Um, Okay, so some of these questions, I think I've already addressed in terms of. Data assurances applies to UCR today. We see that the origin of the data itself is suspect, but what about the data entry categorizations? Um, uh, That question I kind of addressed, but part of it is part of the research industry around the UCR is there's all this stuff about kind of manuals, about training. One of the things that's happening with the uh, move to the NIBRS or the, the other data, not the SRS model, but the non hierarchical model is Um, there's this, kind. I I saw something, but I don't know a lot about this process where they said, you know, are they certified? Right. And so that's an interesting thing that a researcher could look at. It's like, what does it mean for kind of, um, you know, law enforcement agencies to get certified and what's that process? That would be a very interesting study. Right. Um, and a, and a great contribution, um, Uh, does UCR data include reports of crimes committed by the police? I don't believe it does, right? And that is one of the major critiques that people have raised is that um, data uh, is not included that's committed by the police. Um, uh, For example, including like some of the CompStat data, like some of the stop and frisk stuff is not kind of included in some of that stuff, right? Um, And so, you know, Uh, Clearly, that's a critique that a lot of abolitionists make is that um, there are a lot of there's a lot of violence that would be called crimes that the police commit that does not get included in um, a lot of this data. Um,
2: Okay, Uh,
0: Justin is asking me if I read a specific book. I have not, Justin, but thank you for putting on my radar. (laughs) Okay. I'm sorry, Jess, I'm just laughing because it's like such a specific point. Have you read this book? No, Jess and I haven't, but thank you so much for asking. Um, uh, a lot of police interactions for low-level crimes only result in citations. Do you have advice for people when to track these statistics? So Melissa, um, one of the things I would say is that um, I would say it could be useful to look at how people tracked misdemeanors, right? Um, when we say low level crimes, you wanna think about something that might be considered a citation, uh, you know, misdemeanor or a felony arrest, right? Or uh, a conviction or a felony. So I would say to look at some of the uh, models of how people looked at misdemeanors, um, I don't have the link with me right now, but I did a bunch of data stories for Colin Kaepernick's Abolition for the People series. And one of the things I talked about in those data stories was some of the data available on misdemeanors and some of those data sources that people are looking at. Um, And if you go to Kaepernick Publishing's Instagram um, on data stories, uh, you'll find my data stories and the one on misdemeanors has the sources there. It, It lists some of the sources. But I would always say, look at kind of some of the examples that people are looking at. What I would say is that you want to also, this is something, you know, going back to Melissa's question about, she's, um, we're thinking about kind of um, some things. You also want to become familiar if you're thinking about kind of organizing around the police in your city or in your area, you want to think about how does that data get collected by the police itself? Different police departments have different. Data collection methods, right? They have, first of all, they have different reporting methods for just reporting a crime, right? Do you know, some cities have something where you report an auto theft online, right? Um, or you report, you know, something, you know, online versus a phone call to 911, right? And so you want to be kind of familiar with like how does an incident get reported to the police just in your city? What are the different kind of routes of that data can come to the police, right? Then you want to find out, you know, how do they collect that data specifically? Then you'd want to find out do they report data to UCR? Do they do it at the state level? Do they do it at, you know, kind of um the federal level, right? And then I would start kind of tracking some of that and kind of seeing, you know, can you see any discrepancies or whatever between kind of or in that process, right? You could also, um, you know, with CompStat, there's so many cities that have adopted CompStat and some of it has to do with, you know, Jack Maple, um, you know, uh, and William Branton being very entrepreneurial, uh, both in terms of kind of taking it places, but doing consulting. And, you know, it's global. Right. And you can see, you know, in some of these cities are the cities that don't necessarily report a lot of data to UCR. So it's about becoming kind of familiar with, like, how is that data collected specifically in your city um, as part of whatever political campaign you're trying to raise around how people use crime data to kind of make certain claims or to kind of, you know, uh, oppose certain social justice policies.
2: Okay, um, Let's see here. Um, OK, I think I answered. Um, so, you know,
0: are there conclusions that can be drawn about cities which are not in the FBI's UCR data, right? So this is something that, you know, part of it is, um, you know, it'd be hard to kind of say what all cities are not in the UCR data. Um, What I would say is, you know, again, find out kind of how cities report that data and how they make it public. Right. That's also another thing. So, you know, as I showed you, New York City does CompStat 2.0, and that's their idea of kind of data transparency, right? I would say that there's a lot of issues regarding, you know, how transparent that data is. Um, but this is something again, where I would say, you know, is there any conclusion that can be drawn about CISWERS or not in that? It's hard to say, I mean, um, I would say the question about kind of some of the bigger cities not being in the UCR data and what that might mean, especially when those cities get so much attention and kind of crime conversations nationally and in kind of debates about the police and abolition. But again, I would say, you know, um, you want to just kind of uh, act very locally for kind of looking at some of that data. if That's what you're trying to look for. All right. So I think we're going to close it up. I want to just think again One last time, you're gonna hear me, you know, um, name all the sponsors one last time, y'all, okay? Um, But I want to thank one last time, Haymarket. I also wanna thank um, uh, Interrupting Criminalization, Survived and Punished, Community Resource Hub for Safety and Accountability, 18 Million Rising, Critical Resistance, Civil Rights Corp, right? I also wanna thank once again, um, the the people who provided um, uh, the ASL services and also um, the closed captioning. And um, I finally want to thank everybody who worked on this behind the scenes and so forth um, to help uh, get this together. Finally, I want to thank all of you for uh, sticking with it, um, with this lecture and checking it out. I hope it was helpful. I hope you have a wonderful night. Thank you.
1: Thanks for listening.